All right, all right. How are we today? Good, good. Good, good. Hey, I uh, want to welcome uh, everybody across all of our physical locations, anybody joining us online. So good to have you. If you have a Bible, would you please find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we are going to be today. And if today is your very first time here and nobody warned you, all right, uh, maybe the girl you're really into before she said she'd go out with you, she said, you need to go to church with me today. You're going to find out why, all right, here in just a minute. And I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not. All right, so uh, anyway, to kind of catch you up to speed, uh, two weeks ago, I preached for nearly an hour on the subject of sex and uh, received a lot of attention from that. I've always been told if you want to draw big crowds to church, do a series on sex or do a series on the end times or better yet, do a series on will there be sex in the end times. <laughs> and so lots and lots of attention. I didn't have enough time to cover everything that I wanted to cover in part one. So we split it into two parts. Today, I'm gonna to cover everything else I didn't have time to cover then. So if you missed that message, go back and listen to it later today. But you guys have made my job a whole lot more difficult because you sent in questions, all right? And so lots and lots of good, good questions came in. And so I'm gonna to try to address as many of the most common ones that came in uh, both today and next week and, but there's just no way I think I can get to all of them in this series. And so we may even have to do like a special podcast where I speak specifically to some of these really, really good questions that you all sent in. Now, uh, if you are just now joining us, we are about halfway through a series of messages called Significant Other. And here's the big idea of the series is that uh, you and I were created in the image of our heavenly father. And because he is a relational God, we are relational people. We crave relationships with friends, family, and a potential significant other, uh, a romantic encounter, uh, maybe a marriage relationship one day. Now, all of this is found in Genesis chapter two. So in Genesis two, we see that God created the universe. He created the world and everything in it. And then he created Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. And they were designed to uh, not fulfill or complete each other, but to complement each other in every way. So uh, physical, emotional, spiritual. It's those words of Adam when he first lays eye, laid eyes on a very naked Eve. He's like, man, at last. But then in Genesis chapter three, we see that Satan comes and he destroys and distorts this image of God within us. So, so what I mean by that, is that marriage and sex in that order is God's design. And he actually designed it and he gave it to us as a gift and he knows how it works best. Therefore, we do not have the authority to edit it or to redefine it. So God designed sex as consummation, not just merely recreation. And it's meant to mirror the covenant relationship that God has made to us in and through Jesus Christ. So here's another way of saying it. Sex consummates the covenant, which is why we are to wait to experience it after promises are made to each other for life. It is a, it is a powerful thing, the fusing of two bodies into one. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for intimacy, we learned this two weeks ago, is dod, and it means the mingling of souls. And it is emotional and it is even spiritual, which is one of the many reasons why sexual abuse and trauma is so damaging because it strikes us at a spiritual core level. This also explains why Satan attacks and counterfeits it. So just by way of review, I said a couple weeks ago that when God instituted a marriage, Satan initiated a war and he's been waging war ever since. And in Genesis chapter three, Sin entered the world and what it did was it put a wedge in our relationships with one another and with God. It distorted our view and understanding of this good gift that God has given us in sexual intimacy. And it shattered the image of God within us. And that's when Adam and Eve experienced for the very first time sexual brokenness. And their response was to hide in shame. And that has been our response ever since. 
And so I can remember the very first time that I was exposed to porn in uh, junior high. And it's probably like 99.9% .9 of the rest of your all stories. I was in my driveway shooting baskets in the middle of the afternoon. A friend of mine came over on his bike. He hopped off his bike. He had something tucked up underneath his shirt. It was one of his dad's hidden playboys. He pulled it out, ripped out a picture, handed it to me. I did not know what I was looking at at first. And then I found out it was an image of a very naked woman. And here was my immediate response, excitement, followed by hiddenness. I wadded it up, put it in my pocket, didn't throw it away, put it in my pocket and then felt shame. And those three emotions are what most of us have experienced when it comes to sexual sin and brokenness, excitement, hiddenness, and shame. And Satan is a deceiver and he is an accuser and he is a counterfeit. And sex tops the list. See, God designed sexual intimacy and Satan seeks to destroy it. So a number of questions that came in over the last couple of weeks, and I hear this a lot as a pastor, is sort of around this idea of, well, you know, if I have certain physical urges and desires, then God made me that way. And how can it be a sin if God gave it to me? And I need to speak very directly to this, but I wanna speak very empathetically and very pastorally. I need to get the tone of this right. This whole issue of, well, God kind of gave this to me, so I need to act on it. And I just need you to know that no, he did not. That it is a distortion of what God made in you and for you. Now, those of you that are pushing back on me, you're not quite sure what you just heard, you're uncomfortable with that, go with me on this. Understand, let's just make a list of all the things that existed before sin. Uh, did you know that work existed before sin? Food and rest and attraction and sex, all that stuff existed before sin. Sin is a distortion of the desires and the gift. So food existed before sin. Gluttony is a distortion of the gift. Work existed before sin, but workaholism and, and uh, finding my identity in and ignoring my family, all that's a distortion of the gift. Rest existed before sin. Laziness is a distortion of the gift. Attraction existed before sin. Lust is a distortion of the gift. And sex existed before sin. And anything outside of one man, one woman for life in a covenant relationship is a distortion of the gift. And God calls this sexual immorality, which is not our favorite term. It's not very popular, but remember what I said to you two weeks ago, that every time the Bible talks about sexual immorality, that is our heavenly father saying, please don't hurt yourself. Man, please don't hurt yourself. It's like the manufacturer's warning label on something really, really powerful. But then Satan baits us into it, counterfeits it with a lesser version of what God intended. And then here's what he does. He accuses you in your shame. What you need to understand is that Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but he chooses to call you by your name. And what Satan does is that in the midst of your loneliness, brokenness, and shame, he flashes images of your sexual past across your mind, convincing you that you could never be received by God, that you are totally outside of his grace as we sit in the ashes of our addiction and shame. What I need you to know about Jesus is that he never once scolds, shames, or shuns somebody caught in sexual sin. Not one time. Like, not one time. Now, in fact, in, I, I'm loving these little golf claps. You know, it's just not, not fully in but just kind of there, all right? Luke, Luke chapter four, Jesus said, I have come to bring good news, not bad news in this area, that he has come not to condemn the world, but to save. Now he will convict, and many of us are gonna, I was telling somebody, I was like, this is kind of one of those messages, you know, it's like, if I got to run into oncoming traffic, I'd rather square it, you know, rather than just put a leg out and lose a limb. You know, and I, I like today, I just know this is one of those messages. You're gonna either leave angry or changed but at least there'll be some sort of response. And I just want you to, to know that Jesus is not bringing you about condemnation in your life. He is trying to bring good news. God does not have a low view of sex. He actually has a highest view of sex. And so remember what we said a couple weeks ago, the Bible is pro-sex within boundaries where it will bring blessings and not pain. But all of us have been discipled, me included, uh, in the culture of what is called the sexual revolution ideology of the past 60 years or so. And it has shifted our view and understanding of sex as something sacred, spiritual, and selfless to something that is common, carefree, and casual, just as long as it's consensual. 
But see, we need to understand that ultimately our understanding of human sexuality is a lordship issue. So I, I need to say this at the top of the message is that this message is primarily for those of you that would identify as Christians. If you're like, man, I'm a Christ follower. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I'm in process. I've been baptized. I'm, I wanna follow after Jesus in every area of my life. This message is for you. And this is a lordship issue. If you are not a Christian, and you're here because somebody invited you, first of all, like you can have that conversation with them later, all right? The, secondly, you get to audit this message. You, you can audit this. How many of you ever audited a college class? You're like, I'm here, but this is not for credit, all right? So that, that, now, one day, do I hope that you would give your life to Jesus? Absolutely, but you get to audit this. This is so important for you to understand is that I'm speaking to those of us who have, set, who have claimed to be followers of Jesus in our lives. Now, this is a real particular struggle with all of us because uh, I've got you at best about once a month. Studies show that committed Christians attend church 1.7 times before COVID. Because of COVID, it's dropped to once. So I've got you once a month and your screen has you the rest of the time. So there's everything, you, you, we are constant. The reason why this is so tense and, and uncomfortable for us is because we are marinating in the exact opposite messaging in our culture 24-7. So it's important to understand is that you are discipled by whatever shapes your beliefs, determines your perspective or guides your decisions. So with that definition in mind, I just want you to get real curious about something in your life. If your view and understanding of sex has shifted dramatically in the last five, 10, 15, 20 years, why is that? What changed? And chances are it's because we've been inundated just relentlessly in the uh, dominant ideology of our culture. Or maybe there's a family member or friend that we love and care about very, very much. And they're living outside of God's design for them in this area of their lives. And we changed our view in order to stay in relationship with them. So what we need to understand is that there is the word and there is the world. There is a constant conflict between the two. And the question that we need to answer for ourselves is will I let the world override the word or will I allow God's word to overrule the predominant things I'm hearing and experiencing in the world? Will I edit the words of the creator to be more palatable to the way that I wanna live my life? Or will I submit this area of my life to him knowing that he's a good, good father and he knows what's best? Catholic theologian and philosopher, John Veneer put it so well. He said, we all have to choose between two ways of being crazy, the foolishness of the gospel or the nonsense of the values of our world. So pick your crazy and then go with it. All right, so that's my introduction. All right, aren't you happy? So as we get into the text, but one of the things I think you need to understand uh, about the city of Corinth, all right, which is uh, Paul writes this letter to a church in Corinth. And uh, before we walk through this passage together is that uh, the church in Corinth was, had a lot of similarities uh, to Broad Ripple here in Indianapolis, all right? Everybody was young, single and trendy. They shopped local, they supported a sustainable business. They were environmentally conscious. They ate kale, drank IPAs. You know, every, every election cycle, they're feeling the burn, they're making up pronouns, they're waking up at the crack of noon, all right? And all of them are talking about moving to Nashville, all right? So Midtown, I love you guys. I will have an IPA with you anytime, all right? So, so understand, that's this church. And here's the thing is that they meet Jesus and they get saved in a dramatic fashion. Like God moved powerfully and dramatically in their lives. And I think it surprised a whole bunch of people. Now, this is just a little sidebar here. I do not think that we need to compromise truth in order to reach people. In fact, I think that people are craving truth right now more than ever. Uh, but we need to understand how that truth is delivered is really, really important. So I just want you to know what kind of a church you walked in here today or what kind of a church you're a part of is that we can, as a church, we have to keep these two things in tension with one another, truth and grace. All right, so we, we can be on one side of the column and we can be a church that's just all about truth. And obviously we wanna be about truth, but some churches can go truth, 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 truth at the absence of grace. And what we end up turning into is we turn into legalists. We forget our experience of grace. We end up becoming theological snobs. We sort of give off this impression, even if we don't mean to, that you gotta clean up your act in order to belong here. 
Or we can go to the other side of the column. We need to be a church that's all about grace. We could be progressive Christians and it's just basically, no, these are just suggestions and you just do you and God, God is love. Neither one of those things have teeth in it that bring about transformation. See, we want, this is the kind of church that we are striving to be. Uh, we are not perfect by any means. All kinds of stuff wrong with us because we're human beings. We are trying to build bridges of grace that are supported by columns of truth. See, all truth and I can't hear you. All grace, it won't change me. And so we need to be churches, we need to be a church and a collection of churches that is about the truth delivered in grace. I had somebody say to me a couple weeks ago, they're like, you know, you know, hearing you talk about, you know, human sexuality and all this, I'm really disappointed. I thought you would be a more progressive pastor. And I just want you to know, I am. I wanna help you progress more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So, So understand this, this is what was happening in the church in Corinth is that they got saved in an instant because it's not anything you bring to the equation. So your salvation uh, happens in a moment when you place your trust in Jesus. Are you all cleaned up yet? Nope. Do you have answers to all your questions yet? Nope. Like is God like come and say, man, way to go. You figure this out? Nope. You just claim Jesus. You accept his sacrifice on the cross for you. Then after that is the process of what we would call sanctification. It's this up and down, back and forward, this striving in process to look more and more like Jesus. You will be in this until the day you expire or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. So this is what was happening in the city of Corinth. And because these new baby Christians got saved out of the environment of Corinth, the sex capital of the world at the time. Now you need to understand that they made Vegas look like Sesame Street. These Christians, they bring in all of these attitudes, mindsets and ideologies about gender, marriage and sexuality into the church with them, which was inconsistent and incongruent with God's best for their lives. So here's what Paul is doing. He is throwing himself into oncoming traffic. And he is confronting in chapters six and seven, we'll walk through both of these chapters this week and next week. And he is discipling these new baby Christians in the areas of sex, marriage, and what it means to be single. And he's helping them to be formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus by the way that they think about and practice sex. So let's look at verse nine together. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, those who indulge in sexual sin. So I just wanna stop right there and point out that there is such a thing as sexual sin. That would include hooking up, knocking boots, late night booty calls, second base on the first date, or shacking up with someone you haven't made promises to for life yet. Now, let me just tell you what just happened in some room somewhere, just as I said that, is that some guy just leaned over to some girl that he's with and he put his arm around her and he whispered in her ear, hey baby, he's not talking about us. We're married in our hearts. Now let me just talk to the girl who just got whispered to. What he really is saying is we're married in our pants. And God wants something better for you. And he wants to give you a man who will respect you and your future marriage, whether that is with him or with someone else one day, who will love you and honor you and give you a commitment just as much as what it is that he is asking for your body. And Paul goes on. Paul goes on and says, uh, who worship idols, commit adultery, are male prostitutes, practice homosexuality, are thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusive, cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And man, you read that and you should be at least a little bit exhausted and go, man, I don't know if I'm reading this right. Like it almost sounds like we're all going to hell. Yeah. Like if the verse stopped there, that means that everybody would go to hell. It's what we all deserve. It's what I deserve. Yet here's the good news about the gospel. It goes into really bad places and it rescues us out of what you and I were, Keyword is were, and helps us to become who Jesus died for us to be. Now think about it. Jesus didn't just go to a cross. So you can say, oh, okay, I believe in you. Now I'm just gonna continue to live the same life that I've always lived. And he's like, no, man, I want you to be completely changed and transformed and you don't do it in your power. You do it by my power, my spirit that I placed in you. Now check this out, verse 11. Some of you, talking to the Corinthians, some of you were once like that. Now he's reminding them of who they are in Jesus. But you were cleansed. You were, he didn't say you got holy. He said you were made holy. 
He didn't say you got yourself right. You were made right by, with God by the calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He says, man, that is what you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were cleansed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What that means for us today, and I just, somebody needs to hear this today, you are not your affair, your divorce, your porn addiction, your victimization, your fornication or orientation. That no longer gets to define who you are. Jesus defines who you are. Amen. And now, now, what Paul's gonna do is he's gonna make things really uncomfortable, all right? And so Paul's gonna uh, lean in in this area of sexuality in verses 12 to 20. I just want you to know this is a grip it and rip it text. The more controversial the subject matter, the more closely I just need to stay to the text. And so if I'm looking down, it's just because, you know, it's, it's awkward, all right? So, 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 verse, so verse 12, all right, this is what he says. He goes, hey man, you say, quote, I am allowed to do anything, unquote, but not everything is good for you. And even though, quote, I'm allowed to do anything, unquote, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, quote, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food, unquote. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. Now, what is Paul doing? He does not have a split personality. He's not talking to himself. Here's what Paul is doing with the quotations. He is quoting back to these Corinthian Christians the questions and objections that they texted to him with the word relationships to 87221. <laughs> and now he's going through them. And he's going, okay, here's all the stuff that you guys sent in. And let me quote the question or objection back to you and then let me answer it. And so they're coming along and they're saying, Paul, Paul, as long as we're not breaking any rules, as long as we're not breaking any laws, it's okay. Two consenting adults, what's wrong with it? And Paul's gonna borrow a principle that he applies in another area of the letter where he's like, says, hey man, this might be lawful for you as a Christian, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's beneficial. And he applies this to sex and he's basically saying, hey man, just because it's legal just doesn't mean that it's moral. Just because culture says it's okay doesn't mean that God says it's okay. Just because a nation says it's okay doesn't mean the kingdom of God says it's okay. And then he goes on in verse 13, but you can't say, that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ and join it to a prostitute? Well, never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say, the two are united in one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Once again, speaking to Christians here. You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So what Paul is saying here in a nutshell is what you and I do with our bodies is a type of formation. It is forming us into the kind of people that we are becoming. So the question is, who do you want to become? Now, a lot of questions came in are really around this kind of idea. And this was both single people that are dating as well as married people. They both had a form of this question. Is that basically the question was, what are we allowed to do? Like how far is too far? How physical can we be? Uh, in other words, uh, pastor, like what are the boundaries so that we can run up and down them? And so really what I want you to know is like, I'm gonna try to speak specifically to some of this here in just a minute. But this is really not, some, the Bible doesn't speak so much specifically to like, hey, you're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. But it's really the greater question of who am I becoming by what I do? That's a greater question. So maybe you might be technically allowed, whether it's morally or ethically or lawfully or whatever, to do a certain sex act, even within a marriage relationship. But is that helping you become more like Jesus? Is it helping your spouse become more like Jesus? Those are questions and conversations you're gonna have to have a lot of communication around. See, the, the, the tension not to give in to certain impulses, wants, and desires is 
forming our character while giving in deforms our character. Now, we know that to be true when it comes to things like diet and exercise. Like we just know that. Like, like my body like naturally just craves, you know, deep dish pizza and corn dogs and, you know, all that like 24. I would just, just eat myself, you know, to, the fat kid in me wants to win. All right. So, so I, I, and then uh, just understanding like I really don't want to work out. It's going to be painful. But we just know that it's like, no, I'm going to actually um, um, form my body into something by abstaining from certain practices. Like we just know that to be true of diet and exercise. It's the same with sex. See, the Spirit of God is going to confront those things in our lives um, and he's going to bring uh, conviction. And it's important to understand the difference between um, uh, conviction and condemnation. The Holy Spirit is not condemning you. He is convicting you towards something better. And he says, I want you to bring you back into alignment with God's best. You're covered by grace, but I'm gonna bring you back into God's best. And we've all got to face this decision in our lives. Will I chase my sinful instincts or will I train them? And this is the idea of training. And this is one of the many, many differences between us and the animals. Like the Corinthian Christians would come to Paul and they'd be like, Paul, we're just highly evolved animals. We've got urges, we act on them. Nothing wrong with that. In the words of that Nickelback song, which sounds like every other Nickelback song, Right? Animals, like, no, we're never going to quit. Ain't nothing wrong with it. Just acting like we're animals. <laughs> right? It's like <laughs> so, such a catchy tune. Awesome to work out to. Questionable lyrics. All right? So now we're just animals. We're just going to act on it. But have you noticed, like, animals do, like, really silly things? Like, it's just, um, my, we've got a 90-pound silver lab named Winston. He's amazing. He's a big bear of a dog. And my, me and my son, we uh, uh, went to visit my parents a couple of years ago, and they've got this tiny little Australian sheepdog, and uh, they were playing in the garage. And I walked out, and I found this, all right? So <laughs> this, is, this is our dog. This is our parents' dog. Now, I don't know if you can see, like, the look on my dog's face. He's like, what are you doing? Like, this is just insane. Now, um, you know, you... You can remove that. That's very awkward <laughs> having that in my peripheral preaching. But um, we look just as silly when we just chase after all of our impulses, instincts, and desires rather than train them. And here's the thing. You may not agree with me. You may not be a Christian, but I think you know that in other areas of life. It's like, man, I've got to train myself. I've got, I can't just act on all my impulses. See, we're, we're not just animals. We are an image bearer of God. And an image bearer of God, you have dignity and worth and value. So when you have sex, it's not like two animals who don't have souls. It's two people who do. And by the way, nobody anywhere actually believes we're just animals. Like you ask a rape victim if what happened to them was the same thing as their mom force feeding them to eat Brussels sprouts when they were a kid. And they will be so offended because it is not just another natural biological appetite that somebody's seeking to fulfill. It is deeply spiritual, emotional, and supernatural. So we tell generations, hey man, it's just an animal desire. And then we act surprised at the epidemic of sexual addiction and assault in our culture. You tell a whole generation they are nothing but purposeless animals, don't be surprised when they act like purposeless animals. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says this, no, 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 I discipline my body and I keep it under control and I'm blessed for it. And we all have to do this. We all control our desires for the good of society and for our own spiritual and emotional health and for the health of our marriages. Now, this doesn't make us less of a person. This makes us actually more of the person that God created and designed us to be. And it is called submission to the Lordship of Christ. And it's what we all have to answer to every single day. Will I edit the words of my creator or will I change them because I, I wanna actually do what I wanna do? And you have that choice. And we don't like submission to the Holy Spirit because we are autonomous human beings, especially in the Western world, we value our freedom. And so we say, you know what? I wanna be free, but following your sexual desires, wherever they may lead you, does not result in freedom. In fact, the Corinthian Christians were saying to Paul, Paul, we're finally free of all these oppressive religious rules. We are enlightened, sex-positive people who can enjoy sexuality from, free from the guilt of antiquated rules holding us back from being our true selves. Paul, we are liberated. And Paul says, okay, 
You think you're free. Actually, you're slaves to your desires. And so are we. Porn addicts who stay up late into the night, gazing at the glow of fake images with their pants around their ankles. Man, you're not free. Giving it up on the first or second date because you really want him or her to like you and you're tired of being alone. Man, you're not free. Sneaking around and hoping nobody sees you walk into or out of that hotel room with somebody who isn't your spouse. You're not free. 2 Corinthians 3.17 describes freedom. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So listen, God's got a plan to bless your life. Satan has a plan to curse your life. And just like your company's HMO, you get to decide what plan you're on. And everybody gets to decide. So society is beginning to see that the sexual revolution ideology of 60 years ago just isn't working. Like they're slowly beginning to recognize. I said this two weeks ago. Sociology is just catching up to where good theology has been for thousands of years. And study after study, non-Christian studies, by the way, are just revealing that this so-called liberation has just enslaved us. Here's just a couple of examples. The Washington Post, not necessarily known for its Jesus-centered content, uh, had an article called Consent is Not Enough. And they said, we need a new sexual ethic. And they talk about all the stats about how porn and hookup culture are ravishing this generation. And let me just read an excerpt from it. It said, this generation is the most sexually liberated, but least sexually satisfied. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young adults that sex is good. And the more we have of it, the better. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need marriage to be tied to a relationship, that our proclivities are personal and not to be judged by others, not even by participants. In this landscape, there's only one rule. Get consent from your partner beforehand. Now listen to this last sentence. But the outcome is a world where young people are both liberated and absolutely miserable. This generation is the most sexually liberated and also the least sexually satisfied. Fascinating. The Family Institute did this big study on relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. Let me just show you the graph. Lots of content here. Basically, I'm going to kind of break this down for you. They basically asked couples, are, how satisfied are you in your relationship? Take, take sex out of it for just a minute, just your relationship. And so uh, all the way over on the left, the least uh, satisfied couples were either shared secular, gender progressive, or gender traditional couples. All the way over on the right, the most satisfied in their relationships were highly religious, gender progressive, or traditional couples. So translation, uh, a scenario where a guy meets a girl and gets married and he makes promises to her for life. The most satisfied. Now, uh, let's talk about sex for a minute. The next one. Um, how satisfied are you in your sexual relationship with your partner? All the way over on the left, uh, the least satisfied were shared secular couples. All the way over on the right, highly religious couples. What that means is if you meet somebody, you decide to honor God in your relationship, you get married, you come to church regularly, the stats are showing you're having the best sex ever. A number of questions came in around cohabitation. This idea of like, well, is it, is it wrong for us to live together? Like we love each other, we're gonna get married. Is it wrong? Is it a sin for us to live together before marriage? And there's all kinds of like reasons that we kind of uh, justify this, like financial and, and uh, all that kind of thing, as well as like, hey, you know, we, we gotta test it out first. We gotta see if we're compatible. Now you just take everything that God's word says about it out of the equation. Here's what secular studies are saying. Cohabitation increases the likelihood that your marriage will end in divorce by 30 to 50%. The Wall Street Journal, uh, in an article called Too Risky Not to Wed, it says research shows that marrying young without ever having lived with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. Uh, Jonathan Grant, uh, in his book, Divine Sex, describes premarital sex and living together as subprime relationships. And he describes what he means. If intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high-risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, these relationships are designed to fail. Only one in five result in actual marriage. 
significantly increasing the likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce twice as frequently as those who do not. Serial monogamy, string of consecutive sexual relationships, hinders actual marital satisfaction. Sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for the increased likelihood of infidelity later in marriage. Let me translate that for you. If you've been living with somebody who is not your spouse and you've been having sex or multiple partners, you've just been training yourself to have an affair one day. Now, here's what I mean by that. If before marriage, you're not actively training your desires, you're not resisting temptation or controlling your drive, you're not submitting to the Holy Spirit, and you just say, well, one day when I find the one and I get married, then I'll refrain. Just keep in mind that you do not have the practice to do so. So what I mean by that is that, you know, let's just say, let me talk to all the unmarried people right now. Like you find the one one day, he sweeps you off your feet, you know, she's just is it perfect for you and you decide to get married, newsflash, you are still going to find that hot girl or guy in the gym attractive. And the ability to rein this in becomes really challenging when you haven't developed the instincts, patterns or pathways to train your desires rather than to chase them. When I was growing up, I heard this all the time in the locker room from guys talking about dating girls and living together. They would say, well, you know, you never buy a used car without test driving it first. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying it on first. Listen, man, a woman with hopes and dreams and a soul isn't a used car or a pair of shoes. The Corinthian Christians come back and they were like, hey, Paul, like, man, honestly, at the end of the day, it's my body. It's not hurting anybody else. I'm going to do with it what I want. In Corinth, they had my body, my choice bumper stickers all over the back of their camels. And in verse 13, Paul speaks to this. He says, hey, man, the body wasn't made for sex, but for the Lord. And he cares about your body. I'm going to talk about this next week. We follow a king who stayed single his whole life and never had sex. And he was the most fulfilled person ever. You don't have to have sex to be a more complete person. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Verse 15, don't you realize your body has been joined with Christ? And then he says, really, the most specific thing about it, 19 and 20, he says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. All right, class. Pop quiz, all right? Don't you love those? Who made your body? God, very good. You're much better than the nine o'clock. The nine o'clock was very confused about that, all right? Uh, <laughs> right, who, who came in a body, lived a perfect life in a body and was crucified with nails through his body and was resurrected bodily? Jesus, you're super, super sharp, right? Who is coming to judge the living and the dead, the deeds that we commit in the body, and we will then spend eternity in heaven with him in a new body, right? Jesus, right? So here's Paul's point. Your body, you didn't make it. You didn't redeem it. You didn't resurrect it. It is not yours. It is God's, and it is on loan to you from him, and he bought you with a high price. Now listen. If you are not a Christian, you just audit what I just said. First Corinthians five, Paul says, what do I have to do with uh, judging anybody outside the faith? But for those of you who are, Jesus didn't just die to be your savior, to get you into heaven one day when you die. He died to be Lord of your life right now. And we attempt to keep God out of this part of our lives. And honestly, I've been there too. It's what we might call being a sexual atheist. Meaning we are good with God speaking into most every other area of our life. Aaron, I'm gonna come to church more than once a month. Aaron, I'm gonna serve in a ministry. I'm gonna read a Psalm a day. I'm gonna be in a group. Like I'm all in. But when it comes to the bedroom, God, would you please do not disturb. I don't want you in here. Some of the most shameful uh, moments of Christian history, and I think many of you would know this, are the Crusades. And how the Crusades even happened where, where Christians, they would get baptized. And when they got baptized, they would literally hold their swords out of the water as a visible representation to say, Jesus is Lord of everything, except what I'm gonna do with this in battle, because I know that he wouldn't approve of it. Now in our culture, 
we don't get baptized holding swords out of the water, but we do get baptized holding our checkbooks and our sexuality. God, you can have every part of me except for those two things. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a lordship issue, right? Now I got to land the plane. So let me just give you a couple takeaways, okay? Takeaways, all the married people listening to this, right? Here's your takeaway. Number of questions came in from married couples asking, what does God's word allow us to do intimacy-wise in a marriage relationship? And I would actually kind of read the questions, but you all made me blush. I mean, you said things where I was like, whoa, all right, uh, <laughs> learning some things here, right? Wow, all right, so I, I feel really honored that as your pastor, you feel comfortable enough saying those words to me. I mean, it was just, wow, all right, so good. All right, so, so I, I would love to be able, I always hesitate to, get, to give real specific answers uh, to such a broad group of people. Like, honestly, like at the end of the, like I lose sleep over this. Like if I think about it too much, like I would just crawl up in a ball and cry. Like I got to stand on this stage and preach a message to thousands of people knowing there's thousands of perspectives and it's maybe going to hit you wrong and personality types and all that kind of stuff. So, so just understand like a very specific answer to a question and such a broad group of people, I just can't do it. And let me just say, there is no chapter and verse on oral sex. However, where we don't have a chapter and a verse, uh, we do have biblical principles and that's what we got to lean on. And so understand, here's what the Bible says to married couples. It talks about mutual submission. It, it talks about being considerate of each other's needs, wants, and desires. It's understanding that if one of you has experienced sexual trauma or abuse, you need to take that into consideration and ask yourself, is what I'm asking them to do brushing up against that wound? I've got a really close friend. He's been married to his wife 20 some odd years. And uh, for about the last 12 to 15, they've not been able to be intimate because of her health. And he is just as committed to her and loves her and is not going anywhere. So, so understand that we've gotta be really, really considerate of one another, all right? Now with all of that said, when it comes to, I can't stress this enough, emotionally healthy and spiritually healthy marriages, all right, then we got to understand it is not just procreation, it is recreation, right? The song of songs, like it gets really, really graphic between this marital relationship and this husband and a wife. And uh, she's talking about, you know, he's talking about laying between her breasts and she's talking about tasting his fruit, all right? So just use your imagination, okay? So... <laughs> So, so we need, and when it comes to healthy, spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy Christian marriages, like I said this two weeks ago, we need lots of Pentecostal marriages, lots of tongues and laying on of hands, all right? So <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7, so those of you that weren't here two weeks ago. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7, we'll get into this uh, more next week. L listen to what Paul says. He goes, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Some of you just found your life verse. You're just like, that's it. That's my next tattoo, all right? And you're like, you're like, yes, ma'am, reporting for duty. I can apply that right now. Like, it's like, so in healthy, emotionally healthy spiritual marriages, man, you work to keep it red hot. Now, my wife would tell you I can make anything sexual, right? She comes home, she's like, I think the tires on the truck need to be rotated. I'm like, I'll rotate your tires right now. And she's like, I don't even know what that means. I'm like, I don't either. That's, Sounded good, all right? Uh, I heard it, they texted it in to me. I, I used that. All right, verse five. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Now listen to this. Unless you both agree to refrain, this is good, healthy communication from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then he says this. I say this as a concession, not a command. It's like, I'm not commanding this. I'm just saying, hey, this is a wise thing for you to consider. So a whole bunch of questions that came in around what can we and can we not do, it all comes together under the umbrella of, uh, and I'm gonna get into this next week, that your marriage will not work if you don't first operate as Christians, secondly, operate as friends. And then you're having good, healthy communication with one another. Unmarried people. And I'm going to get real specific to all the singles next week because Paul addresses it in chapter seven. Here's your action step, single people. Flee sexual immorality. <laughs> that's so awesome. That's like, <laughs> amen. Oh, yes. That's so good. I, thank you so much, Pastor. I, 
That moment of awkward silence was the best. Oh man, I wish I would have had a GoPro to record that. All right, so, so here's a few questions that came in. How far is too far when it comes to dating? For instance, and then they gotta, you know, specify, making out a sin, kissing, placing hands on the hips, cuddling, fondling. Well, I wonder what you're doing. All right, so uh, here's the other one. Uh, my boyfriend and I have been dating for one year. Can we sleep together, no sex, and kiss sometimes? And let me just kind of say this, like, uh, you, man, uh, you are, once again, like we're the border, let me run up and down. And you saying like, hey, can we sleep together and not have sex? That's basically like saying, I am starving to death. So I'm gonna go to bed with my cheeseburger and not eat it. <laughs> That's what that is. All right. Uh, what determines the limit for non-married couples? What makes holding a woman's waist while dancing fine, but six inches lower, that's a sin. And that, just, that one just made me chuckle. I was like, did you fall asleep during your high school biology class? Six inches lower is where the hoo-ha-ha's are, right? And it's like, it's a totally different thing. Totally different thing. Uh, is masturbation wrong if you don't watch porn while you're doing it? I mean, I just really appreciate all the honesty of these questions. And here's what all these questions are asking. Just like, what are we allowed to do and not do? Because I'm just gonna run it right up to that border. Once again, I just want to throw this uh, statement out to you of formation. You might technically be allowed to do it, but who are you becoming by what you do? That's the greater question. In the letter to the Ephesians, it says, if you come face to face with Satan, like literally, like you face him in an alley, here's what you do. You put on the full armor of God the breastplate of righteousness and the sword and the, and the shield, and you go toe to toe with Satan. We're talking like uh, no shrinking back, uh, UFC octagon bloodbath. That's what you do. But it says something very, very different when it comes to sexual temptation. See, um, everywhere it talks about sexual sin because it's so unique and different. It, it doesn't say that you face it and fight it. It says that you resist it. That, that you flee sexual immorality. Why? Because you and I don't stand a chance. Now, here's practically what that means. If you walk out to your car today when the service is over and you see Satan leaned up against your car, he's just kind of throwing a ball up, and, up in the air and uh, he wants to fight you. Here's what you do. You go toe to toe and you fight him right then and there because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. All right? Now, if you walk out to your car, guys, and 1990s Pamela Anderson is laying on your hood looking all Baywatchy and Corinthian, all right? Here's what you do. Run, Forrest, run, right? You, you can't, you do not stand a chance. Like you just run. And every time somebody fell into sexual sin, here's what happened. They decided to stay and flirt rather than flee. Now, what this means is that some of you are gonna to have to make some really hard decisions today that are not gonna be very popular with your significant other, friends and family, or even with yourself. And the question is, is am I gonna trust God in this or am I gonna trust what I really wanna do and what culture says? And there's just some really beautiful moments in this. Like, I, I don't mind throwing myself into this tension because I know it's where we're all living anyway. And I'm just hoping, I'm just hoping that many of you would come to just reach out the truth and the grace that Jesus is offering because the other way does not work. And at the end of the first hour, I had a young couple come up to me in their 20s. And uh, they said, hey, uh, could we talk to you for a minute? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they said, one of the questions that you read specifically, like that was ours. And at first I thought, oh man, they're gonna be mad at me. And then immediately they teared up and they said, thank you for speaking so directly and so kindly and so beautifully to us. And then I said, could I pray for you guys? And they said, please do. And just through a whole bunch of tears, I just laid my hands on them and prayed for them and watched them walk out of here hand in hand. These next few moments are gonna be really hard for some of you. And I knew that preparing this message and I prayed specifically for you because some of you are gonna have to walk out of here today and you're gonna have to end that relationship. And I'm so sorry because I know you don't wanna be alone. And I know that you really care for this other person. You maybe even really love them. And I'm not even saying that you need to end it for good, but maybe for now it's what's best. Some of you are gonna need to walk out of here today and you're gonna need to move out because you're living with your girlfriend and your boyfriend and you're a Christian, you're saying you're Christians, but you're harming your future marriage relationship. And I'm so sorry, because that's gonna be awkward and it's gonna be inconvenient and it might cost you something. 
Some of you have already started a family and you're living together with kids. And I, I want you to be a God-honoring man. And I'm speaking to the man right now because the sin of men is passivity and abdication. And you need to give her with your life what you've already been asking of her body. And you need to make a commitment to her. And some of you are gonna need to set really hard boundaries in your dating relationships because not only are you running up and down the borders, but you spend plenty of time on the other side of it. And what that means is that you're gonna need to stop being in alone together. That means you're gonna stop being in the dark together. That means you're gonna commit to say, we are going to stay vertical and not horizontal because we wanna honor God in our relationship and our future marriage. Who or what is going to be Lord of my life? And here are your options. It's either short-term pain or long-term pain. Short-term pain, break up, move out, set limits, be made fun of. That's painful, it's short-term. Or long-term pain, broken marriage, joint custody, damaged reputation. Well, I choose between short-term pleasure or long-term. Short-term pleasure, the thrill, the makeout session, the orgasm, or long-term pleasure, committed love, maturing affection, and emotional health. I want you to know as your pastor, like I don't take any of this lightly. I mean, we've, we've hopefully been able to have fun. I mean, you gotta laugh about some of this stuff or you just cry. But I want you to know that there is a conversation that I refuse to have one day because I know that one day I'm gonna stand before Jesus in heaven. And I do not wanna have this conversation. Jesus, it was such an honor for me to be the primary pastor and shepherd of Traders Point for all those years, one of the greatest churches in the world people that I love very, very much. But God, you said some things about sexuality that I knew was gonna hurt their feelings and I knew it was gonna make them uncomfortable and I knew they were gonna get mad at me. So I refrained from telling them. I don't ever wanna have to say that to him. That would be really selfish of me. Cause just like anybody, I wanna be liked. I don't want you to be angry with me. I don't want you to send me skating emails. I wanna be friends. But even more than that, I don't want to undercut the truth that there is a good, good God and a heavenly father that loves you more than anything. And what he says about this area of your life is for your good. And I trust some of you will receive that and it'll completely change your life. It'll completely change your relationship and it'll completely change your marriage but not without some pain. The question is, what pain will you choose? And Jesus went to a cross so that you could be redeemed and washed and sanctified and cleansed. So when he looks at you, he knows your sin. He calls you by your name. And today, would you step into that identity? Father, Thank you for being a good, good God. Forgive us where we have failed over and over again in this area of sexual sin. God, forgive me when I have stumbled and fell in this area of sexual sin. And it's hard, especially in the culture in which we live to run in oncoming traffic of the primary direction of everything, where everyone else seems to be traveling. But God, we wanna trust you. So God, I pray right now that you would set captives free. I pray that the blind would see. I pray that the oppressed would be able to be unshackled from that. And that there would be people right now in the seat where they are, that they would experience your incredible truth wrapped in grace through the person of Jesus Christ. May we step into that identity, trusting that you've done everything that we need for our salvation. And so now, we wanna follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said,